Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our reading today is from Hebrews 6, verse 19 through 728. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have the commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one had ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descendant from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This became even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, 
since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Please be seated. Thank you so much for joining us on this Thanksgiving weekend. I trust that you were able to gather with family and friends, perhaps, and eat a lot of food. What a blessing it is to have such an abundance of provision. We're so thankful for that. I believe when we enter into those moments, we should actually saturate ourselves with the good things because through that shadow form, we taste and see just how good God is. If that is good, how much better must be the substance? Jesus is indeed better than. And that's really what we see inside of Hebrews chapter 7. Jesus is better than the old system of prophets, the priests, and the kings. When our son was in high school, they would take a trip to New York and come back with watches and sunglasses that claimed more value than they were actually worth. On November 15th, 2023, the largest counterfeit bust in U.S. history net one billion in knockoffs from handbooks to clothing, shoes, and sunglasses. Federal authorities say they seized more than $1 billion worth of counterfeit luxury products in New York, making it the largest seizure of counterfeit goods in U.S. history. In all, the Department of Justice says it seized 219,000 items. Reformed theologian Charles Hodge wrote an article entitled Christianity Without Christ. He said, Christianity is that state of one's mind produced by faith in the truths revealed concerning Christ. In this sense, Christianity without Christ is an impossibility. There's no such thing, there should not be, of a Christless Christianity. It would be, in effect, without its proximate cause. Nevertheless, there is a form of religion, widespread and influential, which is called Christianity in which Christ fails to occupy the position assigned to him in the Bible. Now, my fear as a student of Scripture of church history, which we've been noting on Sunday mornings as well as Wednesday nights, and of the state of the church is we are buying a Christianity that is fake and told it is genuine and healthy. This scenario has been with us from the very beginning of time through idolatry and the subtle but real poisoning of the church. Because of our inability to know the truth, We have accepted the counterfeit. How terrible would it be for us to discover that the money in our wallets might very well be fake and therefore worthless? What if in our sincere desire to love Jesus and serve others, we have actually betrayed the gospel and its unsearchable riches? Friend, our study of Hebrews is to set us back on the right path and re-engage the gospel. Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is better. And in his absence, we have absolutely nothing. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people in this place. And our desire is to hear what the Spirit of God says through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is indeed better. Father, I pray that by knowing the truth, we would be able to spot the counterfeit, that we would purge Christianity of everything that is not Christ. So, Father, guide our thinking, guide our volition, guide our emotion, that all of it would be a celebration of the gospel as we consider our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for these moments. May we use them well. We thank you in his name. Amen. Now, we began reading in chapter 6, verse 19. The paragraph actually reaches back all the way to verse 13 and runs all the way through Hebrews 7. 
But before jumping back into Hebrews 6, 13 and following, we need to remind ourselves of Psalm 110. Last week we looked at Psalm 110, and this psalm occurs extensively in the New Testament and in the book of Hebrews. The stress point is verse 4, where we read, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after, after the order of Melchizedek. Verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 110 celebrates our conquering king. Verses 5 through 7 celebrates his complete victory. The one who is identified as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek is also a king. Thus, Jesus Christ, in fulfillment of this psalm, is our king priest. The one who is according to the order of Melchizedek is also that conquering king who completely destroys his enemies. Psalm 110 forms part of the biblical backdrop to our study in Hebrews 6, as does Leviticus 16, which we had read this morning and we will explore further. As this entire passage relates to Melchizedek, we need to pause and clear up any misunderstanding concerning who exactly this individual is in the book of Hebrews. Well, first, his name only occurs twice outside of the New Testament or outside of the book of Hebrews. It's found in Genesis chapter 14, with reference to the story we have in our passage, Hebrews 7. And then it also occurs then in Psalm 110, verse 4. So the only time the word Melchizedek occurs in the Old Testament is Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. When we come to the New Testament, the only time the word Melchizedek, that title, occurs in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews. So when we look at the book of Hebrews, we realize that this emphasis on Melchizedek is significant. And the third thing we have to realize when we look at Melchizedek, that Melchizedek is an enigma. And that is the point. How much do we know of him? Very, very little. But Melchizedek serves a purpose. Melchizedek prepares us for and points us to Jesus. So the point isn't Melchizedek, the point is Jesus. And that's really the focus of our study. Melchizedek is just a shadow who's preparing us for and pointing us to the substance that is Jesus. Very little is known about the historic actual Melchizedek other than he was a priest and a king to whom Abraham paid homage and tithes. So everything we know about Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Therefore, we know very little of him. We like to search out that which we do not know, but there is nothing to know. Melchizedek points us to Jesus. That is his role. Thus, the significance is that Jesus is the antitype to the type that is Melchizedek, both priest and king, who is better than Abraham and all the Levitical priests, and that's very significant inside of our biblical theology, inaugurated or started a better covenant, offers a better hope as an eternal intercessor. All of that is heavy and savior and offered himself as the perfect once for all wrath satisfying sacrifice and that is enormous that's huge now it's apparent when reading the book of hebrews the emphasis within the book is the repetition of the office of priest and of high priest so when we read hebrews we keep coming across the idea that jesus christ is not just a priest but he is the great high priest historically from the book of leviticus what exactly was that function? Now, I'm wanting to put this in perspective. And I, again, this is very, very tight. But if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll start seeing how often Jesus Christ is referred to as the priest, as the great high priest. We see this in Hebrews chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. But there is this 
overabundance of the idea of a priest and of a high priest. And Jesus Christ is both of those offices. Concerning the priest, the duties of the Levitical priesthood included the teaching of the law, maintaining the tabernacle and temple, officiating in the holy place, inspecting ceremonially unclean persons. They abjugated disputes and they functioned as tax collectors. When you look at the occurrence of the word priest or high priest in the book of Hebrews, what I've shown you on the screen is all of its occurrences. And then I've equally shown you their occurrences in chapter 7. So chapter 7 is this concentrated reference to Christ as both priest and our great high priest. And you can see that in the way that he is described. When it comes to Christ as our great high priest, and we read Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the great high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. He would offer up a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people. But it occurred one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and only the high priest would be able to go into that. What I find amazing about this whole idea is simply this. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is described as a priest, but he's not from the line of Levi. He's from the line of Melchizedek. He's after the order of Melchizedek. In addition to not only being a priest, he's also the great high priest. And you think to yourself, in the, in the land of Israel, there was a high priest that people identified as such. The author of Hebrews says, although there is a high priest after the line of Levi, there's a greater high priest. And the greater high priest has been identified after the order of Melchizedek. You've got to believe that the recipients of this letter, it caused them cognitive dissonance. There had to be mental gears grinding when Jesus Christ is identified, not just as a priest, but also as the great high priest. He is the one who can go into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And we'll see by the end of chapter 7 that Jesus Christ offers himself as the sacrifice that atones for our sin, meets the justice of God, and stops the wrath of God. And that's incredible. So when we talk about the great high priest, when we talk about Christ as priest, and we reflect on what it meant to them then, we come to three conclusions. One of three conclusions. And C.S. Lewis notes this in his small work, Mere Christianity. Jesus Christ is either a crazy person, he's outright a lunatic, he is either a liar, or he is indeed all that he claimed to be Lord of all. So when you read the book of Hebrews, you're not given an option of saying, well, you know what? He's simply a good moral teacher. He sets for us an example that we are to follow. No, not at all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is the one who offers up himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He enters into the Holy of Holies and does for us what we could have never done for ourselves. So one of the difficulties that we will have is seeking to find something that isn't there. This isn't about Melchizedek. It's about Jesus. And it points us to him and that he isn't from the line of Levi. He's from the line of Melchizedek. He's been appointed in that way. So when we come to Hebrews 7, and Hebrews 6 does form for us a backdrop, but there's two primary ideas. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 7, there's two primary paragraphs. 1 through 10, and 11 through the end of the chapter, verse 28. In verses 1 through 10, 
you have this statement that Melchizedek was better than the Levitical priesthood. And it's simply setting us up. Here's what Melchizedek was in relation to Abraham and the tribe of Levi. And then here's who Jesus is. Here's what Melchizedek was. Now here's what Jesus is. And those are the two primary points of this particular paragraph. When you look at verses 1 through 10, that has two primary divisions. 1 through 3 is the history of Melchizedek, and then the significance of Melchizedek in relation to what the author of Hebrews is presenting. But we have these two ideas inside of verses 1 through 10. Now, it is impossible not to read Hebrews 7 in light of Hebrews 6. So back up just for a moment and listen to Hebrews chapter 6. And the intent of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and the only reason I didn't read the entire paragraph is we were already reading all of Hebrews 7, and that's a big chunk of Scripture. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, it's used to assure the people of God, the believing people of God, that God will be faithful to his promises. Now, when we get to verse 19, it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, making reference to the Holy of Holies, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where the high priest would enter in, offer up blood sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people. Now it's making reference to Jesus being that great high priest. He's the one who goes behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our go-between, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7 is this enormous expansion on the idea of Melchizedek. But we have two ideas in verses 1 through 10. His history and then his significance. And 1 through 10 sets us up for verses 11 through 28. 11 through 28 is really the, the truth bomb, as Mike Davis would say, inside of Hebrews 7. But let's quickly note verses 1 through 10, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 3. We first note his title. The word Melchizedek is a compound word. It means both king of righteousness and king of Salem. The context is in Genesis 14, the event being described. It's before 15 where the covenant made with Abraham is confirmed. We know that what Abraham does in verses 1 through 3 is that Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything from the spoil. His nephew Lot was taken. Abraham goes after, secures Lot, and conquers those oppressors, those kidnappers, those conquerors, and he brings back all this wealth. When he meets Melchizedek, he takes a tithe of all of the spoils and gives it to him. And then we have this genealogy statement. Without father or mother of genealogy, you're thinking, well, who's that? Well, this is supposed to raise one's eyebrows. And it is an impossibility. It simply speaks to the mystery of the man. It is a statement that has no response. We're not trying to figure out where he came from. We're not trying to figure out his genealogy. We're not trying to figure out his date of death. We're simply identifying Melchizedek as this mystery element that is a shadow of the substance. But Melchizedek is a contemporary of Abraham who is also a contemporary of Job. So if you read the poetic books and you read the book of Job, Job and Abraham were contemporaries along with Melchizedek. 
And this is about 2000 BC. That's his history, and it's setting us up. It's laying down this groundwork. His significance is seen in verses 4 through 10. And notice, notice verse 4 with me inside of Hebrews 7. It says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. So Melchizedek is immediately set up as being greater than Abraham. It's also setting us up, notice verse 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior Abraham is blessed by the superior. It'll also tell us that Levi, because the tribe of Levi was in the loins of Abraham, was also, like Abraham, paying tithes to Melchizedek. So as much as we think of the tribe of Levi, Melchizedek is greater, because even Levi paid tithes in and through Abraham to Melchizedek. But the significance is in four things. Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham, so it's setting us up. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. The primary point lies in verse 7. The inferior Abraham receives the blessing from the superior Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek's service was not affected by death. It continues forever. Now we know that Melchizedek died, but Jesus doesn't. What, is, what Melchizedek is in shadow, Jesus is in substance. And then even Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because they were in Abraham's loins. They were his offspring. Verse 3 inside our text says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. This word resembling speaks to make like. It is the only time that this word occurs in the New Testament. And the author's intent is to say, just as Melchizedek was, even so Jesus is. Verses 11 through 28 takes us from Melchizedek to Jesus. So Melchizedek was better than the Old Testament Levite. Jesus is better than the Old Testament Levite. And put this in context. The author is pushing against the idea of going back to the Old Covenant. He also pushes for continued acceptance of Jesus as the guarantor of the New Covenant. There are five contrasting ideas between Jesus as the appointed priest from the line of Melchizedek and the order of Levi. So again, the audience receiving the letter are being pressed by their peers to go back to the old covenant, to go back to the system of Levi. And the author says, that's been annulled. It's been canceled. There is a new high priest, a new order of priests. It's after the order of Melchizedek, and it is Jesus. And what the next section does, verses 11 through 28, is show us five ways in which Jesus is better. And we do well to understand this. First of all, Jesus provides a better means. Notice how verse 11 begins. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise from the order of Melchizedek? The point being is this. Perfection was not attainable, but one has come through whom perfection is attainable. You cannot be perfected through the Old Testament law. That kind of perfection is only possible through Jesus. And this is a big deal. 
His righteousness, His perfection has been imputed to us as His people. Therefore, we are perfected in the eyes of God. Jesus is a more perfect means. Had the law been able to provide what humanity needed, then the functional work of Jesus would not have had to happen. If you go back to the Old Covenant, there was no need for a New Covenant if the Old Covenant was adequate, but it's not. From my reading of the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament, it seems so clear, it seems so plain. The flaw did not lie in the law, but in us. We could not do what the law demanded. Christ, however, does. This is what Hebrews argues. To make the law an end rather than a means to the end would be a misapplication of the law's intent. In the book of Hebrews, the audience is being challenged to go back to the law, to the shadow. And the the author argues that to do so is to go back to immaturity. To go back to the law is to go back to immaturity. We see throughout the New Testament that Shadow is an empty cistern incapable of providing life. Everything outside of God is intrinsically deficient. Only God is self-sufficient and eternal. In verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 7, we read, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, a different tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar, from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus as priest is a priest, but of a different kind than of Aaron or from Levi. And this word occurs, this idea of different occurs in chapter 7, verse 11, verse 13, and verse 15. Jesus Christ is a priest of a different kind. Jesus can do what the order of Levi could never do, and what the law and its means could not do, Jesus did. Folks, we say to that, hallelujah. But it would be wrong for us to go back to law. Why? Because the law is imperfect. It cannot do what we need done. The second thing we see inside of Hebrews 7 is not only does Jesus provide a better means, and again, remember the context in which it is written. The audience is being appealed to go back to law, and the author says, no, Jesus provides a better means than law. Not only does he provide a better means, but a better hope. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, which is Jesus who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but in contrast by the power of an indestructible life. For it had witnessed of him, Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. It could not do what was needed to be done. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And who or what is this better hope? It is Jesus, through which we draw near to God. Right now, if you know Christ, you have complete access to God and acceptability by God. And why? Because of Jesus. Jesus has done this for us. He is our better hope. The author uses a word occurring twice in the New Testament and only in Hebrews. The ESV Bible translates it as setting aside. It is the word to disannul, to cancel, to put away. The early church was being persecuted to go back to something that had already been put away, that had already been canceled, that had already been disannulled. Why would I go back to that which is old? It's been canceled. Christ is the fulfillment of all these promises, not the law. 
He is the only one and only way guaranteeing this better covenant. He is the better hope and agreement between you and God. Christ is all that we have. Thus, he provides not just a better means, but a better hope. The third thing inside the passage, verses 20 through 22, is that Jesus provides a better covenant, a better agreement, a better contract. In verse 20, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes verse 22... Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. When I read the book of Hebrews, I am absolutely amazed at how much assurance we as the people of God can have as to what God promises. There's two elements needing attention inside of verse 22. The first is the word guarantor. What does that mean for us today? And then the second is the word covenant. We begin with the word covenant in verse 22. It's the first occurrence in this letter of the very interesting word, covenant, which hereafter will occupy an important place in the rest of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, you'll remember you have two kinds of covenants. The first is a royal gift covenant, which is unconditional. The superior makes an agreement with the inferior and gives them promises that the superior will fulfill, regardless of the inferior. We know this is the seed promise of Genesis 3.15. God will provide us a Messiah who will crush the serpent's head. Not because of what we have done, but because of the promises he has made to us. That's a royal gift. The second is a vassal treaty. That's conditional. That's the Mosaic Code. You do this, and I'll do this. It's conditional. In our case, Jesus is the fulfillment promise contained in the royal gift covenant, and as such, can meet all the conditions of the vassal treaty. And he guarantees both by his own power person in actions. Here's who he is. And because of that, here's what I will do. This is Jesus speaking. The second word, and that's where we find something that to me is absolutely amazing, is the word guarantor in our text, chapter 7, verse 22. This verse uses a word that is found only here in the entire New Testament. So when you read your Bible from Matthew through Revelation, the only time Jesus Christ is referred to as a guarantor is in chapter 7, verse 22 in the book of Hebrews. It's a legal term. It refers to someone who assumed the obligation of another. Jesus will meet the covenant in all of its provisions and all of its promises, all of its demands. In this role, Jesus is not a mediator who arranges agreement among all parties, but as a guarantor who assumes responsibility that the obligations of a contract will be fulfilled. Jesus guarantees the perpetual realization of a covenant as the believer's representative. And think about that for a moment. All of the demands made in Scripture are guaranteed by God to be met. Who meets the demands? Our guarantor. Jesus does that for us. Now think of this for just a moment. When we read Hebrews, we read these passages, which we have called warning passages or problem passages. And sometimes they have a tendency to upset us who believe. But they are not written to us who believe. It is written to those who don't believe. If you don't have Jesus as your guarantor, you have no hope. The only possible way for the promises of God to fail for us, the only possible way for the promises of God to fail for us is for Jesus to fail. That's the only way. He is the guarantee against failure. Not us, but him. 
The whole idea that Hebrews teaches that a genuine believer can lose their salvation is absolutely absurd. The only way for the justified not to be glorified is for Jesus to fail, and that is impossible. Jesus has said, I will guarantee the outcome of what I have promised. I will meet all of the stipulations, all of the demands. Did Jesus do what he promised to do? Yes. And because he is the guarantor of this promise, I can rest. It is already finished. We do not need to fear at all. The next better found within the passage is verses 23 through 25. Jesus provides a better intercessor or intercession. Verses 23 through 25 read, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So they had to keep having priests. But he holds his priesthood permanently. There's no one after him. He is it. It all stops in him because he continues forever. And what I think would be of great value is if we took 22 and we wrote it out longhand and we memorized verse 22. And verse 25 is another one of those rich verses. Consequently, he is able, because of him never dying, never stopping, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Is Jesus Christ your great high priest? Have you accepted him as such? He guarantees the outcome. He guarantees the surety of the promises. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Jesus Christ is doing right now for you? He is interceding in your behalf. And he is guaranteeing that what he has begun, he will finish. If you are justified, if you've placed your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, then he guarantees that you will be glorified. And the only way for that dynamic or equation to fail is for Jesus to fail. Why do we feel compelled to add to what Jesus has done? God puts a period where we often put a question mark. Jesus Christ stands alone in the role he fulfills. Only an eternal Savior can bring an eternal salvation. Only a forever priest can offer a forever placation of God's justice. This is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus does. No one and nothing can compare with him. No one and nothing can replace him. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Everything that the tribe of Levi was, everything that the great high priest was, Jesus is even better. Verse 25, notice, consequently is able to save to the uttermost, to the very end, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When we read verse 25, it should silence any doubt as to whether or not our confidence confession in Jesus is adequate or enough. Is he your confession? Is he your confidence? Then you need not fear as to the outcome. We are not sufficient, but he is. The only way salvation fails is if Jesus fails. The fifth, Jesus is better, is Jesus provides a better sacrifice. 26 through 28 is so rich, and that's going to be expanded on in the chapters following. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a great high priest, a high priest. And now notice this descriptive. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. 
that Jesus, as our great high priest, when he entered the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice for himself and his people, he didn't have to make sacrifice for himself. He made it for his people. Since he did this once for all, once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. There's three things inside this short statement that I'm wanting us to accent. First is the description of our priest, his uniqueness. He is unlike any other. That's who Jesus is, verse 26. And then the quality of his sacrifice, verse 27, it's singularity, once for all. That's one of the tensions we have with people who say in the Eucharist, they are offering up again the body and blood of Christ. No, it's once for all. It's finished. The word choice is compelling because it only occurs five times in the New Testament, twice outside of Hebrews and the remaining three in Hebrews. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, it says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. And we're going to see that again in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. And then in Hebrews 7, 27, which we just read, For this he did once. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, but by, but by his own blood he entered once into the holy place. Hebrews 10, 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Folks, it is finished. And the sufficiency of what he has done holds true today. And that can't fail unless Jesus fails. But not only its singularity, but also its personal He offers up himself. He did what we could not do. He offered up himself. And the sufficiency of the one sacrifice to atone for all sins forever results from its absolute spotlessness. That's why we have this incredible descriptive in verse 26. This is who he is. This is what he does. Because of who he is, the offering he brings of himself is once for all. Once for all. And then notice the timing of his appearance later than the law. Christ came incarnate. And it was said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus Christ is the continuation of the story of its ultimate fulfillment. It all comes together in him. Now we place it back into its historical context. Can we not sense a degree of foolishness to be received by those who would even ponder the returning to the weak and regular elements of the law? Why would you go back to that? It's been disannulled. It's been canceled. It's over. Jesus Christ is the new. Embrace him. He is the guarantor of this new covenant. That can't fail unless he fails. So when we look at all this, what are the implications from this passage for us today? Well, first of all, understand the role of Jesus. When you look at Jesus, when you think on Jesus, Hebrews 7 should deepen our understanding of Jesus Christ as the ultimate and eternal high priest whose sacrifice brings salvation. Christ. And what Hebrews does is elevate him in his role of our great high priest. He does for us what we could have never done for ourselves. So when these words are spoken to the audience and they're thinking of the great high priest that they currently have, going in on, into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, the author says, no, that's Jesus. Jesus is now the one who does that. Jesus is now the one who did that. And it all happened 
at the cross. The second thing, appreciate. Appreciate the superiority of our Lord's priesthood. Hebrews 7 emphasizes the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. It highlights the completeness and finality of his sacrifice. Embrace that. This chapter also serves as a source of encouragement for believers, assuring us of the effectiveness and permanence of his role as our mediator between God and humanity. Right now, Jesus Christ is interceding on my behalf before the Father. I take great joy in that. I don't approach the Father based on my own merit. I don't say, Father, I think I can come because I did pretty good yesterday. Are you with me on that? I come before the Father because of the righteousness of the Son. I have a complete and full access to and acceptability by the Father. Are you hearing what's being said? That's what the text says. Christ is that high priest for me. Not because of what I have done, but because of what he has done. I have simply accepted what he has done in my behalf. I need to be encouraged. And then when you think of atonement, what Christ did in our behalf, the perfect, sinless, blameless son of God offered up himself as a sacrifice, whereby taking my place and doing for me what I could never have done for myself. It is a once and for all solution to sin. And it's all found in him. When you and I wrestle with our sin issue, take it to the cross. Jesus Christ has already answered that for us. Take it to the cross. Right now you might be in bondage to some kind of addictive behavior. Right now you might bear the weight of guilt. Take it to the cross. Christ has answered that for us. He's done that for us. It's all about him. And then as we close the study, think about this. We've been in Hebrews now for several weeks. And it's easy to begin detaching from the message. What are we going to say in Hebrews 8? Jesus is enough. That's the point. But we begin detaching because we keep hearing it over and over and over again. Well, let us be encouraged. Let us keep reading and listening to the book of Hebrews. Become so familiar with Hebrews that when we talk about chapter 2 or chapter 1 or chapter 5, you immediately begin understanding what the primary idea is. Because that's why God has given us this book. Inside of the passage, inside of this text, we looked at Hebrews verse 22, verse 25. Look at those passages again. Meditate on them. Take what you have heard. Write it out longhand. Do something different. Print it. Use cursive if you can. But put it down on paper and meditate on these things. This is good stuff. And then share it with other people. Our world struggles with perfection. They struggle in this context of being right with God. And you can point to verse 22. You can point to verse 25 and say, Jesus Christ is the guarantor of a new covenant. He's a better hope, a better means. He can do for you. He can answer the question. Jesus. Then ask yourself, how does knowing Jesus as our great high priest change how we face our responsibilities and relationships? What does it do for me knowing that he is my great intercessor? The day will come when you will find yourself frail. You'll find yourself vulnerable and confused. The day will come. You might say, well, Pastor Pat, I've already been there, done that. But the day will come. 
The day will come when death's cold presence will begin to creep into your soul and the negating voice of doubt will be an unwelcome visitor. In that dark day when you become aware of the valley of the shadow of death in which you live and through which you pass, you will find comfort in an eternal high priest who ever lives for you. In that dark moment when you lie on your deathbed, Jesus Christ is interceding in your behalf. He is the one who stands in your place before the Father, and the Father awaits you with acceptance, with assurance. You will find comfort knowing this journey is not the end-all in answering the question of personal perfection. When you stand before God Almighty, who is the creator and judge of all things, your answer can only be the one and only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Eliza E. Hewitt, she passed away in 1920, was a public school teacher. One of her students struck her with a heavy slate and she suffered a severe spinal injury which forced her to retire from teaching and made her an invalid the rest of her life in Philadelphia. But she was able to continue to be involved with children in Sunday school and as a superintendent at the Northern Home for Friendless Children. She was also used to write a number of hymns, hundreds of hymns. And it is from this wealth of experience she wrote, My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Do you know Christ? We need to rest in Christ. Please stand with me as we close in prayer. Father, what I need, I cannot, I cannot do. I need someone who will stand in my place, who will take the just sentence against me and bear it on themselves. I need one who would do right and then give it to me. Father, I have all that in Christ. Father, I pray for any here who do not know Jesus as their great high priest, who do not know him as the one who will carry, who has carried their sin for them. He has borne our sins, and in place he has put his righteousness. I pray for the person who at this time does not know Jesus, but that today the Spirit of God would cause them to say, you know what, I can't save myself. I want what God has done, and it's done in Jesus, and today they would be saved. Father, for those of us who know Jesus, it becomes common thought of who Christ is. Help us not to become complacent, but help us to lean heavily upon the person and work to know that in Christ, we have one who is even now interceding in our behalf. We have one who has given to us his righteousness so that we have accessibility. We can draw near and acceptability. We are embraced with open arms. Father, may this be our rest, regardless of where we are right now, emotionally. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in such a way as to comfort and encourage us that we would look to him who alone is worthy. In his name we do pray. Amen.